I invite you to turn with me in Scripture to the Gospel of John. We'll be continuing our sermon series from that Gospel. Today we focus on the last part of chapter 6, but in the reading I'd like to read a few verses from chapter 3 where the Lord Jesus in His discussion with Nicodemus goes over some similar themes that crop up again at the end of chapter 6. So some, some of the thoughts from chapter 3 can help us understand chapter 6. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We've worked our way through this lengthy chapter. We've seen that there's been this controversy between the crowd of Jews in Capernaum, between them and the Lord Jesus, and then there's kind of an aftermath to this dispute, a fallout, I guess you could say, starting at verse 60, and that'll be the focus of the preaching this morning. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. 
And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. That's the conclusion of our text and the focus of the preaching this morning. Church of the living God. Just how offensive is the gospel? As we as congregation get more involved in speaking with our neighbors and reaching out to the community with the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ, we are all, I'm sure, trying our best not to be offensive in the way we come across. We try not to be rude, but respectful. We try not to antagonize people with unnecessarily harsh statements, but focus on the positive message of forgiveness and salvation. We try hard to be winsome, not abrasive. Our goal is to win our neighbor for Christ, a laudable goal, and part of doing that is not giving offense, and yet what happens when people are offended by the very message of the gospel itself? Do we realize how the work of Jesus Christ, how the, the salvation that He brings is for some people a pill too bitter to swallow, something that they cannot accept? And when we run into a person, encounter a person who's offended not by our manner, but by the very words, the gospel that we bring, how then should we respond? These are the issues and questions of our text as the crowds of Jews respond to Jesus' preaching. Jesus uses this occasion to teach the twelve disciples and us today how to handle the offense of the gospel. And so I bring you this word of the Lord under this theme, only Jesus' words give eternal life. Only Jesus' words give eternal life. We'll take a look at the mystifying rejection and then the miraculous acceptance. Well, so far in this encounter all the way through chapter 6, this encounter with the crowds, we've seen an increasingly negative response from them. There's already been a fair amount of rejection. We've seen that over the previous sermons, but in our text, it, it goes up a level, up a notch. For John writes in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it. 
they said, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? So it's not just the broad crowd of Jews having issues with Jesus, but now all of a sudden it's many of his disciples. It gets repeated in verse 61, but Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling. There's dissension in the ranks. You know, it's one thing when passing strangers dislike your message and turn away. That's one thing. It's quite another when your very familiar students, your disciples, take offense and also think about turning away. That's a whole different ballgame. Well, who are these disciples anyway? From later in the text, we know it's a group that's larger than the twelve because it's the twelve who stick around. From the other Gospels, we know that there was, at least early on in Jesus' ministry, there was a larger group of followers who were attracted to Jesus' teaching, who believed His words, who had committed themselves to Christ. That's what a disciple is. It literally means a student. A student then who's dedicated to learning from the teacher or the master. So like the twelve, they would very literally walk around with him. Later in the text it says they no longer walked with Jesus. So for a time they quite literally walked the countryside with Jesus. And you can think of uh, the 70 disciples. On another occasion, the Lord Jesus sent out 70 men in pairs to preach the gospel and to announce his arrival ahead of him as he was making his tour through the various villages. So at one time, there was a fairly large body of disciples surrounding Jesus whom Jesus had spent time with, had eaten meals with, had conversed with, in other words, they knew Jesus, and He knew them personally. And yet, despite all that they had seen and heard from Christ, something He just said had evidently caught them sideways and makes them doubt. That gets referred to in verse 60, this hard saying. Well, that would naturally refer to the Last thing Jesus said in the previous verses, and I think verse 58 kind of summarizes this hard saying, verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, said Jesus, will live forever. So these disciples, they're not offended by Jesus' style or His manner, but at His words. And verse 61 says that they began to grumble. The disciples started to grumble. Well, that's the same as what the crowds were doing earlier. John mentions that in verse 41 and 43. Everybody around them was grumbling. Now the disciples start to grumble too. And that word grumble should ring a few bells because that grumbling was something the fathers of old used to do in Moses' day. And not a good thing. The Israelites under Moses in the wilderness, they, they, they grumbled when there was no water. They grumbled when life was hard. 
they grumbled when they were told to go into Canaan and, and, and God would crush the giants in front of them, but they didn't believe, so they grumbled. You have to understand this grumbling is not just a, a bit of minor discontent. This is unbelief. Grumbling in the desert was unbelief. Grumbling out of the mouths of these disciples around Jesus is also unbelief. John tells us, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They went into unbelief. They could not accept Jesus' words. Can you accept Jesus' words, beloved? It's not passing strangers who grumble, but it's people like us, people who know, people who have professed faith of a kind anyway, people who made a commitment, people who identify as believers, they took offense. Do you take offense? Do I? What were they offended by? Well, there seems to be two things that tripped up these disciples. One, that Jesus dared to claim that He had come down from heaven with the implication that He is Son of God, and also he calls himself son of man, and that's a reference to the figure that Daniel the prophet saw in his vision, that son of man who uh, went to meet Yahweh on the clouds. So that's also a, a divine name. Jesus says, that's me. They had a problem with that. The second reason is that Jesus, as Son of Man, has said to them that He would bring salvation by sacrificing His flesh on their behalf, by dying for them. That was the bread from heaven. We've seen that in previous sermons. That was the food for their souls which would endure to eternal life, which they needed to accept and eat by faith. But these disciples, they couldn't stomach it. And as we saw last time, their expectation, their vision of what the Messiah would be and what kind of salvation He would bring was completely different from what Jesus was now telling them. They weren't thinking sacrificial lamb. They were thinking conquering hero. And so they're offended. And Jesus turns and asks them, do you take offense at this? He doesn't pull back. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? Jesus never changes His message to win hearers. He actually pushes back on their unbelief. You don't think I came from heaven? You take offense that I said I came down from heaven? then what will you think on the day when you see me, the Son of Man, because that's who I am, when you see me with your own eyes back in heaven, ascended in glory, what will you say then? You find it offensive, he says to them, that, that I have to give my flesh in sacrifice for you? 
then how stunned will you be when you see the Son of Man having been crucified, now raised to life and raised up to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father in glory and power and splendor? What will you say then? Because that's going to happen. All that I have said to you is true. And though it means hardship and suffering and pain and torture for me in the short term, it will mean glory and honor for me, and it will mean for you salvation and rescue from sin and Satan and death in the long term. So don't take offense at my words, but believe my words. Jesus never changes His message to win hearers, but the hearers have to be changed to accept His message. His words are the only words which have the power to give eternal life. You never dumb down the gospel to win converts, but you rely on Christ's Spirit to convert the very people given to Christ by the Father. Conversion of hearers, the forging of true disciples who will last, who accept and believe all that Christ teaches, that is the work of Christ through His Spirit. Jesus said it to Nicodemus already in those verses we read, chapter 3, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You have to be born of the Spirit. You can't make yourself born of the Spirit. He said that earlier in chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now he says it in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life flesh is no help at all. What he means by the flesh in this context is humanity in general, human ability in general, human decision-making power. That's no help at all, he says. It's the Spirit. It's got to do it. The Spirit of God, the Spirit whom the ascended Christ will later send down to earth in full force to live in the church and the words of Jesus work together with the Spirit of Jesus to produce life, spiritual life inside the hearers who are dead spiritually, hearers that are selected or chosen by the Father and given to the Son, as he said earlier in the chapter. The flesh is no help at all, says Jesus. That is what explains the mystifying rejection of these disciples by people who had once made a commitment to follow Him. It's mystifying because from our standpoint, we're thinking, how can they do that? How can they leave? These disciples they received an opportunity, think about this, to walk with Jesus in the flesh. They could go out down the street, 
walking beside him, talking with the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, hear him teach. Like just, just imagine being, a, you know, hearing the Sermon on the Mount in person. See him organize that miraculous catch of fish in person. See him heal the sick, cast out demons with your own eyes. That's what these people had seen and heard. We're kind of bewildered at their response, aren't we? I mean, don't you just wish you could have been there with Jesus for just a single day? Wouldn't that have been amazing? Don't you feel like saying to this, these disciples, how could you be so blind as to not see Jesus for who He is? You were there with Him in person. You, you saw those miracles. How could you fail to embrace Him as your Messiah, Savior, and Lord? We can become frustrated with the crowds. And their unbelief, it, it confounds us, it bamboozles us, it perplexes us. But brothers and sisters, we need to hear also these words of Jesus. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You and I didn't come to faith in Jesus because we're just a little bit smarter than the next guy. Just a little bit smarter than those disciples who walked the shores of Galilee with him. Because we are maybe a little bit more perceptive, a little more humble, a little more godly, or have a little bit more free will in our veins than they did. No. All flesh would fail to respond as they did if it were not for Christ and His Spirit. All humans, including ourselves, would turn away from Jesus if it were not for the power of His Spirit and words which, which enter into our stony hearts and make those hearts soft and pliable and believing hearts. Well, there's at least two things to take away from that particular teaching. First, don't be so shocked and don't be disheartened when people turn away from Jesus, even people you know. This happened very personally to the Son of God Himself. Disciples turned away. No amount of preaching, no amount of miracles by or fellowship with the Savior Himself could make them believe. And so it is still to this day. You and I can't give people faith. We can't change their hearts. And so unbelief, it divides, divides communities. It, unbelief splits off members from the church as they go their own way. It separates friends. Unbelief breaks apart families. That, that antithesis between belief and unbelief, it, it runs right down your turkey table this Thanksgiving. At least it could in many cases. Believer and unbeliever around the same dining room. And though the unbelief you see across from you at that table, it grieves you and it pains you as it most certainly grieves and pains the Son and the Father. Make no mistake. Though you have that pain, do not let it rattle you as something unexpected. Do not let it undermine your own faith. 
Do not think of joining them in their unbelief because it has always been this way. A turning away from the words of Jesus, a turning away from Jesus Himself has always cut through families and friends and churches and synagogues and communities. So hang on to your faith by hanging on to the Lord Jesus and His words with all your heart. Don't let the unbelief set you off. And then, brothers and sisters, pray with all your heart. That's the second thing to take away here. Jesus repeats in verse 65 an earlier point. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. We have to take that seriously. It's the Father in charge. It's the Father who directs hearts, who draws people in through the words and spirit of His Son, Jesus Christ. So pray to the Father for the conversion of the hearts you are concerned about, hearts that are currently turned away from Christ. Don't, don't look to the people themselves to change their own hearts because they cannot, but your Father in heaven can. He can send forth His irresistible, His invincible grace. And we know that the Father is good. He's filled with grace, filled with love, filled with kindness. We know He longs to save the, the lost. Just like the Father in the parable of the prodigal son, that Father was ready every single day. He was eagerly ready every day to receive back His prodigal child. So our Heavenly Father is eager to receive repentant sinners still today. That's His posture. So pray. Pray for your parents and your grandparents, your sons and your daughters, your cousin or your friend, your neighbor or co-worker, whether they've once been a disciple or never have yet confessed Christ, whether they are a straying covenant sheep or have never been inside the flock, appeal to the Father's unfathomable mercy to work in their hearts an acceptance of the gospel. He's the source of all that. Of course, you speak to your loved one, your contact, your friend, when you have the chance, but before doing so and even during, you know, those little silent prayers in your mind while you're speaking, and then after you speak, before, during, after, pray. Be unceasing in prayer for that individual or those people because the way to win your neighbor's heart is by pleading with your Father in heaven who most certainly will grant miraculous acceptance to all whom He has chosen. For the Lord Jesus, we should take note, is not disheartened by this development. Imagine you were the teacher. First, there were you know, there was 15,000 people around him at the beginning of chapter 6, and all were singing his praises, right? Everybody wanted him to become king. By the end of chapter 6, those 15,000 had dissipated. They didn't want to hear from him anymore. And now the disciples who had been with him for quite a while, let's say a group of 100, let's just throw that number out there, 
most of them are taken off too. That wouldn't make you feel very good, would it, if you were the teacher? But the Lord Jesus is not put off by this. Notice how he responds, verse 64. There are some of you who do not believe. And then John, the writer, adds a comment for our benefit. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He knew it all along. <clears throat> He's not surprised. On the one hand, when the crowd of disciples was swelling and even that larger crowd of people were coming, he did not chase them away. He didn't say to them, oh, you're a bunch of fakers, go take off. I don't want to deal with you. I know you're going to disappoint me later on anyway. No, no, he patiently taught them. And with those disciples, he walked with them, he welcomed them. But on the other hand, when they left, he was not taken aback. And he was not taken aback either at those who stayed. In the midst of this large departure of disciples and the crowds, there were some who stayed. With all that negative hubbub going around, you would wonder if anybody would stay. He turns and he asks the twelve, verse 67, do you want to go away as well? And actually, in the original, it's, it's a rhetorical question that expects a negative answer. So a better translation would be this. You do not want to leave too, do you? The question expects a negative answer. Jesus expects. Jesus knows they're going to say, of course not. The answer is not in doubt because Jesus knows those who believe. He knows those whom the Father has given Him. And he knows they will stay. And led by Peter, the twelve do not disappoint. Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To whom shall we go? Lord, well, where, where else could we possibly go? Who else has the words of eternal life? That's what Peter is saying. Plato and Aristotle don't have them. Philosophers known to the disciples. The Egyptians and their band of gods don't have life to give. The Babylonians and the Assyrians, once powerful empires, have come and gone. Even the Romans and their, their high imperial emperor of the day have all kinds of military power, but they don't have the power to overcome death. Not a single Roman has come back to life. And not a single Roman can give eternal life. Lord, only you've got that power. That's what Peter is saying. Is that also then your confession, brothers and sisters? Do you look around the world today at all the options there are, all the possibilities that are presented, and say there's, there's nothing there? Philosophers have not solved the problem of death. Islam 
Hinduism, Buddhism, Shintoism, Great Spiritism, they all promise paradise, but none can deliver. Atheism, that's a non-starter, because all it promises is death once you die. Human science, human reason, and logic proclaim that they can set out to solve all of humanity's problems, but in 6,000 years of trying, has the world become better? Isn't the world in darkness? We've got Hamas sending rockets over to Israel, killing innocent people, and vice versa. We've got wars all over the world. We've got Putin invading Ukraine for no reason. Man isn't going to solve man's problem. The only one who has the words of eternal life, the words which produce life, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we're not going anywhere. Where would we go? Only you can solve these problems. Notice the emphasis on the words of Jesus. He said in verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Peter picks up on that in verse 68. You have the words of eternal life. Words. Words that come from Christ have power. The words of the Holy One, as He's called, the Anointed One, the appointed Messiah sent by the Father, His words, they have a power in them. Just like in the beginning, go back to Genesis 1 in your mind, when God spoke a world, a word, what happened? A world popped into existence out of nothing. God's Word creates. God's Word alone makes something where before there was nothing. That's what the words of Jesus do. For He is God alongside of the Father and of the Spirit too. When He speaks with the intention to create faith and generate spiritual life in somebody, then His Spirit empowers those words to do exactly that, sparking faith, sparking life in hearts where there had been no faith and no life. His words are life-giving. That's why we, we need as, as believers to, to continually stick closely to the words of Christ as found in the Bible. The Word of God as proclaimed by His servants from the pulpits, but also as passed on in conversation, as meditated on in our Bible studies, the words of God, the words of the Savior, they bring about miracles. The miracle of initial faith in stony hearts and the miracle of a spiritual communion with God and that ongoing miracle of strengthening faith and intensifying, developing, and maturing communion with God. When you read the Bible, when you hear its message explained and applied, then divine power is at work to bless God's people. So what do you and I need to do, brothers and sisters? Well, it's pretty simple. Immerse ourselves in the Word. Don't miss it. 
Don't miss your morning devotions. Better to skip breakfast than to miss your devotions. Miss your time with the life-giving power of the Word and prayer. Don't miss Bible study. Don't miss Sunday preaching. For eternal life is being created and nurtured by the Spirit of your Savior in these things. Coming to accept the words of Christ is indeed a miracle. It's the work of the triune God in us. Not something we could ever take credit for. That's humbling, but it's also deeply comforting. For this same Almighty God, with His invincible grace, He will never stop His work in you and in me. However weak we might feel, however close to the edge we might come, sometimes our questions and our doubts mount up. Sometimes we feel like our feet are slipping away from beneath us, but the Father's work of drawing His elect, His chosen ones, through the words and the Spirit of the Son, His work will go on even if there is betrayal of the worst kind. Jesus makes a reference to that in answering Peter's confession. He says, verse 70, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. What would you think if you were one of the twelve hearing that? One of you is a devil. Why did he say that? Why would Jesus tell them that at this time? Well, he's getting them ready. He's getting them ready for the unthinkable act of Judas Iscariot's treachery, handing Jesus over to be murdered. He wants them to be ready so that when it does happen, their faith won't be shattered. That most diabolical act, that satanic betrayal, it has to happen in accordance with the Father's will, but don't let it ruin your trust in me. It's all part of the plan. Those 11 on the night of betrayal, they would be sifted. And Peter himself would have his faith tested to the uttermost. He would even deny knowing Jesus three times. But unlike Judas, the words of Jesus would remain in their hearts, all 11. And through tears of repentance, especially on Peter's part, the seed of faith would be revived and it would grow again, and it would, it would embrace the Lord Jesus again and become a mighty force, that faith within the hearts and lives of Peter and the eleven, uh, Peter and the ten. The Father hangs on to His elect. You can't, you can't undo that. So where will you go, my brothers, my sisters? Where will you go? if not to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Holy One of God who alone has the words of life. Believe in Him. 
Know this to be true in your hearts and, and give thanks to Him. Not just this time of the year, Thanksgiving time, not just over turkey dinner, but give thanks at every dinner, at every occasion, on every day for the life, the eternal life you have received from Christ. And then pray for that life to be created in the hearts of those where it does not yet exist. Amen.